welcome to Geeking with Destination Venus. This is the second episode of the show, and we have got the second part, fittingly enough, of my conversation with Matthew Ehrman, a writer, amongst other things, of the brilliant Witchblood issue two of which is out today if you are listening to the podcast on the day that it drops. But before that, if you're an, a long-time listener to our previous show, The Geeks at the Gates, I've got a sound that you're going to recognise. Spoilers! Spoilers! Yep, that's the spoiler horn, because I have got to talk about The Falcon and The Winter Soldier, which has just finished on Disney+. Plus. Although it's a streaming service, so if you haven't seen it yet, it's still there. And if you haven't seen it yet, don't listen to the next little bit of the show, because I don't want to spoil you. And you do want to watch this show. You just do. It's a very different show to its immediate predecessor, WandaVision. And in many ways, it's a much more straightforward show. WandaVision was kind of weird, at least at the start. Whereas The Falcon and the Winter Soldier feels very much like a Marvel movie. Except broken up into bits and longer. And it feels like a fairly conventional Marvel movie. You've got the sort of buddy dynamic between Sam Wilson and Bucky Barnes, respectively the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And you've got a fairly straightforward dilemma. At the end of Avengers Endgame, Steve Rogers gives the Captain America shield, which is an iconic thing in the Marvel Universe, to Sam Wilson. And Sam doesn't know quite what to do with it. He isn't a super soldier. He was a soldier. But he's not a super soldier. He hasn't taken the serum. And he's not sure that he's the right man to be Captain America. He did, after all, kind of hero worship Steve. So he does what he thinks is the right thing. Right at the start of the first show, he hands the shield over to the authorities, who appear as though they're going to put it in a museum. Never trust the authorities in the MCU, because the next thing he knows is he's off dealing with some personal family business, because it's actually genuinely his family business is in trouble. Um, he sees a news broadcast introducing America to their new Captain America, Special Forces soldier John Walker. And he's not happy about that, but, you know, it is what it is. And he's still doing sort of missions for the army with uh, as the Falcon. And it's on one such mission that his path crosses with the new Captain America. And the new Captain America isn't quite right. In the beginning, when Steve Rogers was selected to be the original Captain America, he was given the gig because he wasn't a perfect soldier, but he was a good man. John Walker is a perfect soldier. Whether he's a good man or not, we'll have to make up our own minds. And I actually rather like the ambiguity, but we'll come to that. So over the course of the thing, um, 
they're pitted against a terrorist group called the Flag Smashers, whose aims actually, I think, a lot of people would be sympathetic to, if not their methods. And certainly, what the Flag Smashers are resisting is something that the GRC, which is sort of the overreaching world government in the MCU, they're resisting something that organisation is planning to do that I would personally disapprove of greatly. So, you know, they're not cookie-cutter bad guys, the Flag Smashers. And that moral ambiguity is something that runs all the way through the show. Um, some fantastic performances, which we'll get to. But I think the the moral ambiguity is something I want to focus on, because it's something that's been criticised. Uh, I've seen reviews of this show that have called it preachy. Um, the word woke might have been used a couple of times by people who clearly didn't like it. And yeah, you can level those criticisms because all that stuff is there. But it sort of has to be. Because there's an elephant in the room which needed to be addressed if Sam Wilson is going to be, as he was in the comics, the new Captain America. And that elephant in the room is Sam Wilson's skin tone. They could have ducked this. They could have ignored it completely. I don't think that would have been authentic to the character. And I'm pleased to say they didn't duck it. What they actually did was slam into it head on. In the second episode of the series, Wilson is introduced to the character of um, Isaiah Bradley, brilliantly portrayed by the actor Carl Lumley. Um, Isaiah is an old man, a veteran of the super soldier program, somebody who was a Korean War veteran, but who was then, having been given a version of the super soldier serum, imprisoned and experimented on for 30 years, having seen his squad wiped out in a mission that was basically designed to test whether they were super soldiers or not. Um, he's understandably bitter, as is his grandson. And they kind of take the view that a proud black man can't carry that shield because those stars and those stripes represent something that a proud black American probably shouldn't be supporting. There's a legacy there that Isaiah believes should be rejected. And Sam struggles with this because Sam Wilson is an American patriot. You know, he proudly served in his nation's military and he believes in the idea of Captain America. But Isaiah tells him there's no way they're going to let a black man be Captain America. And, you know, obviously this comes against the backdrop of everything that happened in 2020 uh, with George Floyd and BLM and all of that. And, you know, the last 200 years of American history. It's an issue they really shouldn't and couldn't have ducked. I'm glad they didn't. And 
I like that we got to see Sam Wilson's working out. Sam actually takes the shield after John Walker, the new Captain America, commits a very public and a very brutal killing with the shield. And as a result of that, Bucky and Sam take the shield from him by force. It's not something that Sam does so that he can take over as Captain America. It's something that Sam does because he sees John Walker as having betrayed the shield. And he doesn't use it straight away. It's not actually until the final episode that the Falcon finally suits up in the red, white and blue and takes the shield into battle. And I very much like that he did that without permission. He was not told, OK, Sam, you can be Captain America now. He took the shield, which he believed was his by right. It had been given to him by Steve Rogers, and it was never the government's shield in the first place. It was actually, if we're going with inheritance, it was actually Tony Stark's shield, and therefore should have gone to his little girl, but it was given by Steve Rogers, the one true Captain America, as Sam's shield. So he takes it back and then decides, I am Captain America, and goes and saves the day. That's not the kind of Captain Captain America I think Isaiah Bradley thought there could ever be. That's a Captain America who is a patriot, but who also sees the flaws in his country and is determined to do something about, which, to my way of thinking, is what a patriot should be. So, crucial question, is it any good? Yes. Yes, it really is. You could say that the last episode goes over the top a little bit. Um, I've heard it be called preachy. I don't think so. I think it I think it said things that needed to be said. And I think it said things that needed to be heard. I think a lot of the people who've been critical of that are people who needed to hear it and weren't listening. As far as the performance goes, what can I say? We have Carl Lumley as Isaiah Bradley. An absolutely solid performance. Completely emotionally convincing. Um, Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes is fantastic. Anthony Mackie as the Falcon is captivating in the role, actually. Better here, I think, than he was in any of the movies he was in, and he was great in those too. Because you do get the sense of conflict, and you also get the sense of trying to find a balance between his responsibility to his friend, Steve, and his friend Bucky, and to his family, and to his community. And by that, I don't just mean black America, although that, but also the place he lives, his town, and the people who are like him, ordinary people who aren't superpowered and who aren't rich. 
it's a complex performance which I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed. I think for me the two standouts though are Erin um, Kellerman as the leader of the Flag Smashers, Carly Morgenthau. Um, she's amazing. I had not seen her in anything before. Um, I don't know what else she's done. She's not actually that old, so um, she's not had a chance to be in that much. Her passion and utter, utter believability made her a very sympathetic character. I am not used to seeing leaders of terrorist groups, which is what the Flag Smashers are, portrayed in such an even-handed and thoughtful and open-minded way. She is not, as I said, a cookie-cutter villain. And she's actually trying to achieve something good. She's just lost all faith that the system will deliver it, and so she is moved to take it, which makes her not that different from the Avengers, really. And I love how the show plays with that. Like, who has got the right to take the law into their own hands? When is it okay to do that? When does doing that make you the villain? I think the show has some answers, but I'm going to leave you to interpret them for yourselves, I think. But she's amazing. I'm very much looking forward to seeing her in other things. Uh, the showrunner uh, called her the glue for the series. And I, yeah, I think she is. And I think she's also one of the moral centres of the series, which is brave from a production point of view. Um, the other standout is, again, somebody I was not aware of prior to this. But Wyatt Russell as John Walker, Captain America, stroke the US agent, because that's where they take him in the end. Again, quite a morally ambiguous character because he's not a straight up villain. He is a man who has done everything his country has ever asked him to do, including some things that are not very nice. And he doesn't quite understand why he's not supported. The man he kills that leads Sam and Bucky to take the shield from him, was a member of the Flag Smashers who he believed had just been responsible for the death of his friend and comrade. Uh, he goes in hot pursuit of this guy and essentially beats him to death with the shield in anger. Now, I don't condone that as an action, but... I think it's an easy action to understand. And, you know, he's a soldier who has been trained to kill. That's what he does. He's a character whose only tool is a hammer. So everything that stands in his way looks like a nail. And that's been something that he's been doing for his government his entire military career. And suddenly, when he does it wearing the suit and gets seen doing it by the public, He's disgraced, he's dishonourably discharged from the army, he's stripped of the title Captain America, and he's essentially cast out by the people who sent him there in the first place. And I think as an audience you can understand why he doesn't understand what he did wrong. 
and why he resents the way he's been treated. And that's not to say he's a sympathetic character, because I don't think he is, and he is certainly the bad guy. But again, he's not a cookie-cutter villain. He's allowed to have some complexity and some shades of grey. And again, just as with Carly Morgenthau, I like that those shades of grey have been permitted in what could have been a very straightforward hoorah kind of show. They've gone for the complexity. They've gone for the moral ambiguity. And I like that. It's a much more grown-up approach, than, frankly, than I was expecting. So, I commend it to you. It's a cracking show. Uh, it and WandaVision are worth the price of Disney Plus on their own. If there was nothing else on offer there. Uh, and that is not a paid endorsement of Disney Plus. They're not giving me nothing. Although Disney Plus, if you're listening, if you want to throw a subscription in my way so that I can continue to watch stuff and review it positively for you, I wouldn't mind. They're not going to do that. But it is just great. Just great. If you can, give it a watch. If you don't have Disney Plus, maybe go around and see a mate who does. Uh, or, I guess, it'll be out on DVD and Blu-ray soon enough. So yeah, yeah, give it a watch. Anyway, moving on, uh, it's time for the second part of my conv conversation with Matthew Willen. Here we go. The thing that keeps me in the business is the people. Yeah. Um, the customers, the creators, um, the fact that we have the technology that we can do this. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's cool. I, I can talk to the guy that wrote one of my favorite current books from the other side of the world it is blowing my mind. It's if cool you, as hell. If you told teenage me when I was just getting into comics that one day we'd be able to do that, it would have seemed like science fiction to me. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was a, I, I was a baby of the eighties. I was born in 89. So I get to say I'm from the eighties, but I don't actually remember crap about it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, like growing up, the idea of talking to other people halfway around the world was like relegated to pen pals. Like you had a pen pal yeah. and, and the, the, you know, technology and the way things have progressed since being a kid from in the nineties is, is mind blowing. And it also like in a, in a way that matters to the industry, I think because of that, there are so many more opportunities to be a comics creator and, and, and not have to rely necessarily on editors or publishers to get your stuff out there. The fact that Web comics right now are incredibly popular. People love reading them. They're easy to get a hold of. That a lot of those creators are finding so much success just putting their stuff out on the internet and and building a career from that. And I think that's really exciting. I think that's really cool. And I think yeah. that uh, you know uh, egalitarianism for art is really important. Everyone should be able to create and put something out there and have uh, the potential for an audience to find it really easily and, 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 and to appreciate it. I think that's kind of the dream of, of creating something is, is to 
you know, however many people it is, find your audience and find people that like the stories that you tell. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the thing that's changed the most since I started reading comics. Um, I remember going to my first con in, it would have been 94, because mm-hmm. I started doing that kind of stuff late. I was out of university by then. Um, and there was one little section of small press mm-hmm. creators, maybe half a dozen people with half a dozen comics. Um, most of them were photocopied. You know, yeah. the, the the best one, I have to say, the best one was printed. Um, yeah. But, you know, there wasn't much. And the reason there wasn't much is because it was really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, still, yeah. the zine scene, uh, zines are still so, so vital to the, to the building of, of the comic community. You know, I think a lot of people get started in zines and mm. that's like the, you know, FedEx it, photocopy it, make a 200 copies and sell them for two bucks mm. at a show. I think the zine, I think zines teach you how to, how to be a part of a community and produce something for people. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I, I did a couple zines before getting into comics, um, pro- comics proper. Uh, I, I don't even know if that's offensive or not, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that, yeah, there's, everyone has a path. Everyone has a path through this, this enormous thing that's been going on for over a hundred years now. Um, just in the published sense, I mean, comics have existed since literal time immemorial. It's the first mm. form of storytelling humanity ever had drawing cave paintings on a wall. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's such a fundamental way that we as human beings tell stories that, and there's so many ways to get into it that, that I'm, uh, that I hope more people do. And, and continue to and that your shop opens up and that people can come into your shop and buy all sorts of stuff. So that'd be great. That really would be great. <laughs> um, so what was your route into comics? I mean, I, I presume you started as a reader like most of us do. You know, honestly, and I'll be the first to admit this, I don't read nearly as much as I should. Um, part of that is because I am lazy. Uh, I have an enormous, I'm not even kidding at least a backlog of a hundred floppies to go through not to mention all of the trades that I've been picking up the past couple of years. Like there's an ungodly amount of comics that I need to read. That sounds just, just, just from friends too, just from people I actually like, like I have, I have Vita's, I have so many of Vita's comics that I have not read and I, and I, and they know this. I mean, I hope they know this and I hope they're not offended by it, but, um, it's just so much. There's such a quantity. I mean, every single month there's like maybe two or three things that get released from a person that I like. And then I got it. So anyway, good for them. Uh, they're finding wonderful success, but I can't find time to read as much as I would like to. Um, with that said, I got into comics as, uh, kind of an interest as, as a writer, really. Um, before comics, I was doing a lot of short story writing and a lot of poetry. I was doing that scene, the literary circle scene, mm-hmm. and found basically no success. Nobody wanted to read my stories, or no, specifically, no one wanted to publish my stories, which is a very there's a very fine line. And so there was a there was a type of hardship where I really wasn't sure 
if writing was going to be the way for me. And I was honestly thinking about kind of putting it as a more of a more of a hobby. Um, and my wife, who's an illustrator, you know, she she was kind of feeling the same way. We were, you know, trying to do our own thing. She was uh, fine, like an oil painter before comics and a uh, uh, graphic designer. And so we were just trying to figure out our path in life. And then I think just through serendipity and chance and just being creative and wanting to try stuff, we decided to do a comic together and we really liked doing it. It was a small 15 page comic that got published by a college here in the United States. Uh, and it was our first publication. It's still up on the internet somewhere. Uh, if people want to go try and find it. But um, once we got the bug, once we saw that publication, once we saw it in print, we kind of realized like, this is really interesting. This is like, we get to tell stories, we get to draw, we get to write. And people are, people say good, people have good things to say about this, which is like really, you know, that's really what you need is when you're first trying to get into something, you just need that little, small, first little, like, tiny little success and that little bit of a push to keep trying and to keep going. And that's what we had. And then um, right after that, I think we really started to work on long lost, which was our first pitch. And that took literally about three years to, to start and to pitch because we didn't know what we were doing. You know, we were kind of doing it on and off. We had day jobs. Mm -hmm. We, we, we were going to conventions. We were trying to get a feel for the industry and it was just as much of a clusterfuck, excuse my language, as you can possibly imagine. I didn't know how to write comics. Lisa didn't know how to draw comics. And so when we were pitching Long Lost, we were basically just shooting fish in a barrel, hoping one would eventually land. And then Scout Comics came along and really liked what we put together and decided to, in, insane, say, we will sign a contract with you for 12 issues which is thinking back, I've been in the industry for four years. I have never, which one is the closest I've gotten to 12 issues? And Scout was like, yeah, 12 issues. Sounds good. And they, they did it without batting an eye. And, and we had a 12 issue comic series for our first thing come out on, on shelves. And that was all through 2018. And uh, we, we really rose to the challenge and it was a huge learning curve. and. Um, and that's really what started it. Uh, I, I literally taught myself how to write comics when I was writing Long Lost because I had no clue. And oh. same with Lisa. I mean, she was that was her first monthly comic mm -hmm. that she'd ever done. And, and we hit all our deadlines. I, I, I'm really proud of that. We didn't miss that's a... That's impressive. Miss a that's it, it, it feels impressive. I feel as impressive a, talking about it. As a, as a retailer, one of the things that particularly winds me up uh and yes jeff johns i'm looking at you is when things don't come out when they're supposed to oh yeah for it's, sure i mean it's real frustrating as a creative team too because sometimes i mean you know sometimes sometimes it's the creative team's fault whether it's missing a deadline or something but frequently it can just be the distribution and diamond can can mess with stuff and just shipping can cause a, a delay, one or two week delay, or sometimes three month delay. It, it, it's really, I completely agree with you. It's the most frustrating thing 
is when you there's a lapse in uh, uh, the story. Yeah, I mean, the, the most recent obvious example of this is Doomsday Clock, which is why I've got a beef with Jeff Johns at the moment. Is that not done yet? It's, it's finished now. Okay, I was like, that came, that was coming out when Long Lost was coming out. Yeah, it took the, I mean, it was it was solicited originally as a 12 issue monthly series. So, yeah. done in a year. Um, then it went bi monthly. Yeah. And then that slipped to kind of every six weeks. And then that slipped to, you'll get it when you see it. I mean, that's so, it's so brutal. It's, and it's so frustrating for the fans because. Part of the fun, I mean, comics really is, it's the last bastion of true monthly serialized writing. Yeah. You don't really have that anymore. And so, you know, part of the fun is going in either every two weeks or every week or every month or whatever it is to get the new hit of the story. Mm. Um, and, and and when that kind of, when that trust starts to break down, I think that's when you get people saying, you know, comics, they're hard to get into, they're confusing, it's its hard to keep up with them. Mm. And that's just because the release schedule can be so funky. The fact yeah. that, you know, we did a, me and Lisa, a two-person team did a 12-issue comic series without missing anything. And, uh, and, a, and a publisher like DC, you know, can have a difficult time getting their 12-issue on the racks consistently. It's <laughs> like... It, it particularly annoys me when it is the major publishers because, you know, if you, if you're a, a, a two-person team of indie creators, mm. you know, a lot of the people I know who make comics have day jobs. Yeah, um, we did during the time. You know, and so, you know, stuff happens in your day job. You That's what's paying your mortgage. You've got to give that priority. Yeah. So if something like that slips, I don't mind. But if you're DC, you or any, or any, or any multi-million-dollar oh, you know, conglomerate. You know, it, you can have because the other thing you don't need to do if you're one of the big publishers is you don't need to get the revenue from issue two in order to yeah. finance issue three. So finish it. Right. If the twelve finish. issue series have all twelve issues done before you publish issue one, and then you won't slip. I, I completely agree. I think more, I think a restructuring of the industry is really vital to seeing it flourish. I think the, the, the kind of rat race to finish comic issues. it's like, I can do it. I can probably, you know, it takes me maybe two days to pump out a draft for a, for an issue for a single issue of a comic book series. And I know writers that have six, seven different series that they're writing and, and that's just, you know, they got to power through them. But mm. the thing is, a lot of these publishers don't necessarily need to announce some of this stuff until it's close to being done. Some of these publishers can take the can take the time to let the work actually breathe, you know, whether that's writing really good scripts, whether that's making sure the art is getting finished, whether that's, you know, making sure all of the processes and there's no hiccups in that. Because, you know, making a comic consistently if you're talking about the dc the, the the big handful of people it involves anywhere between six to like 12 people mm-hmm. just from you know if you're thinking about inkers and pencilers and colorists and letterers and flatters and all of these people that are involved in the single making of this it's like why risk a delay 
if say your colorist or your or your flatter overbooked or they had a you know a life issue, I feel or like uh, you know something happened, and now your comic's going to be two weeks late, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's just that's the way life is, and now everything's two weeks late, and now everything's pushed back. It's like just get it done, just finish it, and then start to release it. I completely agree with you, and I think that's why the book market has been seeing a better a better return for the creative investment. I think a lot of creators are, are, are really trying to flock to the book market because book publishers will give you the time to write your book and mm. they're not going to be like, you know, we announced it. We need it done in the next three weeks or comic shops are going to get pissed all over the world at us. And, and I think that's, I, I, I hope DC and Marvel now that they're moving away from, they both moved away from diamond. I hope that uh, the distribution of things can look more like the book publishing world so that comic book shops can have a more reliable delivery of the products that they order. Because I think, because yeah. Yeah, I, I think the, the distribution issue is an interesting one from yeah. my point of view because I have to deal with distributors a lot. Um, yeah. But yeah, because D- DC is still with Diamond in the UK. Um, oh yeah, that's that's. Uh, I guess that's only the uh, Simon and Schuster things for the US. So it, that even makes it even more potentially confusing because yeah, the the issue the issue with DC in particular, I, I'm not quite sure what's happening with Marvel. Um, but um, the issue with DC is um, they made the decision they made. Yeah, they announced it at like five to five on a Friday afternoon. Um. And nobody at Diamond UK knew anything about it until Monday. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that wasn't a shit show. <laughs> and oh, and uh, I, I know Rich Johnston um, of, of Bleeding Cool a little bit. Um, we yeah. used to work together on our uh, Silver Bullet comics. And mm. um, I've known him, what, 25 years now. Um, Rich is one of the people I meet at cons, right? Um, and you know he obviously has contacts everywhere. He won't tell me who he spoke to, but he good, good journalism. He got not something that's often um, <laughs> linked to Rich, as he would say himself. To be fair, um, but he got in touch with somebody at DC and said, "So how's this going to work with Europe and the UK?" Yeah, and he says there was just a long silence, and they went, "Oh." That's really bad news. Um, and the truth is they hadn't thought about the UK market at all. Um, and for about 30 seconds, there was talk that um, one of the indie, indie distributors over here uh, was going to pick up DC. Yeah. And then I think they looked at the logistics of it and just went, it's too much. We can't do it. I mean, I, I'm not surprised. It's an enormous undertaking. I mean, it's it's literally like I mean, the reason why Diamond is like a global conglomerate, and the reason why Diamond has only been doing this for the past thirty years is because it's an unforgivable job. It's unforgiving the amount of actual work it takes to mm. ship and maintain and create and all. Like, there's a great book by uh, he's actually a local writer. His name is Dan Gerino, and it's called Comic Book. I think it's, or no, it's called comic shop. I highly recommend it. Um, and it, and it really goes into the history of the struggle, the actual struggle of comic book shops 
throughout the entirety of the uh, you know existence of comic books, going back from the '60s all the way now to to I think it, it touches on latest uh, back the the last collapse of the comic book industry back in the early '90s when mm-hmm. uh, when everything I remember started it was- to shut down. Yeah, it goes through all of that. It's a great, incredibly great book. He visits a lot of shops here in the U.S. that have seen all of those things happen, and um, and and really gets into the history of Diamond and how you know through so many unbelievable things that they wound up being the sole distributor of every comic book shop in the United States and then basically the world. And it's it's just because it's so ridiculously hard to do. And up until recently, you know, there's been really no way to do it because every comic book shop on the planet is more or less independently owned. There's mm-hmm. no there's no Walmart for comic book shops. And so to think that you've got, you know, however many thousands of shops, they're all independent, they're all disconnected more or less from each other. And you're trying to get them all the same product that they're all ordering through this. And it's just like, it's mind-blowing to think that it was feasible for so long. And, and, and only now... Are people starting to realize that there are alternatives that that can maybe be better for the shop and for the customer too? So, I mean, for as much shit that gets said about how you know rough it's been working with Diamond, it's it's on the flip side of that. It's like at the like it it could have been amazingly somehow way worse. Oh yeah, I mean i i've I've had quite a lot of negative things to say about Diamond over the years. Um, most, I mean, most people I talk to do. <laughs> everybody, everybody has. But I think it's telling that my reaction when I first got the news that DC were dumping Diamond was, "Oh my God, how's that going to work?" Yeah, I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's it, it's it's you're absolutely right. It's telling of the industry that it's like Diamond is this source of frustration for everybody, from the fan to the publisher to the from the to the creator. It's just like everything that can go wrong in the development of a comic book can happen at the, at the diamond level. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, at the same time though, yeah, you're absolutely right. When, when, when big news like Marvel's cutting from diamond or when DC's cutting from diamond or whoever it is, you just get this wash of like, what does that mean for everybody else? You have no idea because it's yeah. such an ingrained part of the industry and how people, function how shops function yeah it's 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 uh, going to be interesting i i i think so too my hope is that it just makes it easier for shops to get the floppies on the shelves and get uh you know books that may not be so readily available in the diamond catalog i i i, I really don't know if there's going to be too much of a dif- difference in in that i mean maybe comic book shops segue into more just like general bookshops and I don't know how that looks. I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, it's certainly, but, for what it's worth, it's certainly where I'm aiming. Um, yeah. I mean, I it makes sense. It's like if if you've got this catalog that sells not only comic books, but traditional books and all sorts of other kinds of books, you know, you have a larger audience that can come into your store and buy things. And I think that's uh, a very real enticing thing. I think the comic book shop, uh, is this magical place that has existed miraculously for a very long time that, you know, I have friends that know that I'm a comic book writer and have never stepped foot inside a comic book shop 
And I implore them. I was like, please, it's so simple. It's so easy. You just go in, you look at the shelves, you find what you want. It's got pictures. If it looks cool, just pick it up. It's four bucks. It's like, there's, it's the least stressful activity, but people have this preconceived notion of what a comic book walking into a shop like that is. And, and the, the, the research that you need to know, or you need to know all this stuff. And it's like, there is a, there's a learning curve that maybe goes away when comic book shops seg into just a bookshop. Uh, but, and like I said, I, you know, people may burn me at the stake for saying something like that, but I think uh, any way to keep comic book shops open and selling comics is, is the best way to go about doing things. And if that means diversifying the books that get sold, I think maybe that's the way. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I mean, comics are always going to be my core thing. Yeah. But um, yeah, I've, I've started building up, um, you know, certain types of prose novel. Um, mm. Now it's all, it's all sort of geek orientated. You know, it's a lot of fantasy. A lot yeah, of I mean, there's a nice, um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a nice seg where you can kind of look at like, okay, people are coming in here for comic books. They might also come in here for some Neil Stevenson novels or some, you know, or, or, or some like Philip K. Dick, some, some classic mm. sci-fi that they may have never, you know, it's at a comic book shop. Maybe that's the moment in which somebody says, like, I love Saga. I might also, like, you know, do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. It's, it's not that far of a jump either, I, no. I, I don't think. So, yeah, I, I mean, think that's really exciting. And I, I, think, I think we have to embrace the change. Yeah. What I've learned in my life in comics, not in comics retail, but just in my life in comics, is it's always the the publishers or the shops or the creators who won't change yeah, that, that go by the wayside. Um, Absolutely. You have to be willing to adapt to what, I mean, we live in, I hate saying this and I'm saying it with full knowing what I'm about to say. We live in a capitalist society for the most part. And when you have, when you have to look at how, you know, we can survive in that, in that system and still be happy people. And, and, and put out the things and, and, and see the people and serve the people that we want to serve. And so, you know, it's, it's, it, yeah, it, it's incredibly important to be flexible and, and to see the way the winds are going and to, you know, not be, not delicate, but just, you know, not be romantic about any particular aspect of it, but embrace that things can be better or different. I mean, you know, mm. that's the that that's the thing about change is that it could be worse, it could be better, but there's no real way to know until we actually get into the the mix of it. And I think for a lot of people, it hopefully could be better. That's me being optimistic, and yeah. I tend to be an optimistic person. I, I, I think it's the only way to be, to be honest. Because yeah. um, a lot of the time whether change is good or bad is actually a matter of how you deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it will, absolutely. It will take you places you might not have thought to go, but you like them when you, you get know, it's, it's so funny that you bring this up. This is literally coming out in June <laughs> issue. Number one, good luck. I'm not even messing with you. That's basically, that's basically what the story is about is, is the perception of what good and bad luck is. Um, so yeah, cool. Weird. 
everything is a little circular. Isn't it? I love yeah. it when we come around in a circle like that. I, it's my favorite thing. It's almost like we planned it. And anyone who listened to this show before will know that we really didn't plan it. <laughs> um, I, I have trespassed on a trespassed, trespassed. Mm. It's even English is my first language, and I'm still struggling. Um, English is your. I mean, I mean, you are the English. I'm, <laughs> I will hold this over you. <laughs> yeah. No. I. 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 Yeah. But I have trespassed <laughs> on your time. Um, Oh no! Wait, I th- this was a, early morning for you. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, the, I I have an electrician coming over, so this was a wonderful excuse not to have to deal with that. So I'm always happy to provide excuses for skiving. That's um, absolutely absolutely. That's what we're about. But I will let you go. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I I love I just love talking to writers. It's it's a, a an absolute privilege that I'm allowed to do this stuff. Absolutely. No. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I, 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 I love chatting with you, man. It was a, it was very, very easy, very much of a blast. Anytime you want me to pop back on and say hi to the people, to your listeners, I'm, I'm more than happy to do so. Like I said, I've got a, I've got a bunch of stuff coming out in the next year. So people well, will be getting sick of my name. I, I don't Hopefully think so. Not, but, but you are, you are absolutely welcome back whenever you want to come on. Um, that's it's oh, been an absolute joy talking to you. Um, where will people be able to find you online um, if they want to find out more about your work and what you're doing? Yeah, so the the most active place is definitely Twitter, uh, and you can just search my name at Matthew Ehrman. Um, I also have a website that I very infrequently update, and uh, you can sign up to a newsletter. I think on the website um, that I also infrequently send out. It's kind of like a me and my wife newsletter. So if you're familiar with my wife's work, uh, Lisa Stirl, you'll get some information about uh, her stuff too. But um, those are really the only two places. And uh, I, I interact a lot on Twitter. So if anyone has any questions or needs anything, I'm always very readily available. Excellent. And uh, which blood issue two is out? April 28th. April 28th. That's the end of I this think, month. As well. Yeah, it's I think a couple of weeks. Two weeks from... Yeah, I think it's like two and a half, yeah. maybe less than, uh, yeah, less than two and a half, less than two weeks away. And, and I'm, I, I'm, oh no, sorry. Sorry, carry on. No, I'm just really excited about people to get into that second issue. It's got um, one of the most indulgent scenes I've ever written in my whole life. So I was looking forward to it already. You know, I really am. Um, I'm certainly <laughs> going to encourage everyone to go out and get that. Um, and if you happen to be listening in Harrogate, I have got a couple of copies of issue one left. So you can get straight in on the ground floor, get issues one and two together. Um, and it is looking like it's going to be one heck of a ride. So um, I, I encourage everyone to jump on board. I really do. It's, I do too. As the writer and creator, I encourage you to jump on board. <laughs> okay. And, and with that agreement, um, I will let you go. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We will see you soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. It's been great. So, that is the mighty Matthew Ehrman. I told you last week how great he was. Uh, Just to clarify a couple of things, Witchblood Issue 2 is out right now. You can get it 
immediately, if you'd like. I mean, seriously, send us an email, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. And um, the store's not open yet, but we will deliver. That probably won't be immediate. It'll probably be the day after you send us the email. Uh, although we have done some same-day deliveries, because, you know, it's the future. Speaking of comics, um, I would have to say, having read it now, which Blood Issue 2? Yeah, it's better than Issue 1, and Issue 1 was amazing. Uh, it, this is a, a, a series that is just... So far, I mean, okay, we're only in Issue 2, but consistently just knocking it out of the park and getting better and better and better. Uh, I really hope they get to make this an ongoing series. I really do, because the places this could go. Oh, the places this could go. Uh, of course, it only gets to do that if people buy it. So uh, there's another heavy hint. Uh, if you're not listening in Harrogate, or in fact, you know what? Even if you are, you don't have to get it from Destination Venus. Other comic shops are available. And in, in all fairness and truth and honesty, if you are not listening in Harrogate, Please shop with your local comics store. Okay, yeah, we do mail order, and if you don't have a local comic store, email us info at destinationvenus.co.uk, and we can get you get you sorted out. But if you do have a local comic store, even if it's one you have to travel a little bit to get to, I'm going to tell you it's worth making the effort. Here at Desties, uh, we have grown a tiny little community of unbelievably cool people that are the regulars at the shop um, and it's nice to be part of something like that so if you do have a local comic store that isn't me uh, then please 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 they need you right now believe me they need you right now uh, so you know shop local is what I'm saying um, and actually just on that You'll you'll have seen if you're a Harrogate resident that Harrogate is beginning to open up, uh, and in your own town, wherever you are, if you're not in Harrogate, you'll have seen that things are beginning to open up. All of those shops need customers. Yes, you can continue to do what you did during the lockdown and shop online, but if you do that, your high street will die, and your town will become a boring and desolate place. So don't do that. Shop local if you can. Okay. Boring preacher be over. It's time for this week's Comic of the Week. This week's Comic of the Week is The Modern Frankenstein, Issue 1. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh great, another retelling of Frankenstein. Oh, brilliant. And yeah, you know what? They can be a little bit clunky. And it is a tale that has been much adapted and much abused over the years. Uh, for the record, I am a massive fan of Mary Shelley's original. Uh, it is, as far as I am concerned, the first real science fiction novel. And as such, it holds a special place in my heart. Also, the story about how that story got written is as good as the story itself. <laughs> if you don't know about the origins of Frankenstein, look it up. It's brilliant. But this is not that. This is the modern Frankenstein. And it's written by former guest on The Geeks at the Gates back in the day, uh, Paul Cornell, uh, who has written many, many great things, up to and including episodes of Doctor Who. I'm not going to say any more about that because he got cross with me when that's what I wanted to obsess over when I spoke to him. So, you know, he presents a protagonist, Elizabeth Cleave, 
who is a brilliant young doctor. And she comes under the influence of a very charismatic, genius surgeon called James Frankenstein. And uh, being careful, you'll know I haven't sounded the spoiler horn for this bit. I am going to try really hard not to spoiler it because I genuinely want you to read this. Frankenstein is a very determined medic, and he wants to advance medical knowledge and the ability of the medical profession to save lives. Very noble, I'm sure you'll agree. But he's frustrated by the ethical concerns that make some experiments impossible to do. He has this idea that if he could do these experiments, you know, albeit that the subjects of those experiments would suffer, he could save millions of people off the back of the suffering of a few. And in his very logical, precise brain, that's where he goes. And I don't think that's a spoiler. I mean, that's sort of a reveal in issue one, but I don't think that's a spoiler because it's in it's in it's in the blurb. And that's not really what the story is about anyway. The story is about the ethical dilemma and the cost of pursuing what you perceive to be the greater good, regardless of who that hurts. And it's a genuine reflection on whether that cost is too high or whether it's a cost society might be prepared to bear. And obviously our representative in this narrative is Elizabeth Cleave. The question isn't how far will Frankenstein go, the question is how far will she go? How far will she go along? And we've got no way of knowing that yet because we're only on issue one. It's a really solid premise and you know, in no way, at least at the moment, do we have a mad scientist who's trying to build a person? That's not what this is about. I'm not saying that's not going to happen, uh, but that's not what this is about. It's much more interesting than that. Uh, the, the the shades of grey. Much as I was talking about in my review of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it's the shades of grey that make this interesting. It's, yeah, he's doing bad things, but is he a bad guy? Really? It's It's that. And uh, I, I love that kind, of, that kind of narrative because I think life is shades of grey. There are very few people who are wholly good and wholly bad. But this is a comic, not a novel. So what about the rest of it? Well, it's beautifully illustrated by the amazing artist Emma Vicelli. Uh, I've been a fan of Vicelli's for a long time now. Uh, she's never really been massive in mainstream comics she's been much more a creator owned kind of artist but seek her out at conventions should you ever go to one because first of all she's great she's a really nice person uh, but her work is stunning her visuals are great colors are provided by pippa boland uh, and letters by her husband simon boland so yeah, there's a bit of a family thing going on there and it it truly does look amazing that the, the the design is great too, but the colour palette that Pippa Boland puts over Vicelli's lines is perfectly judged. And the lettering, and people don't talk about lettering in comics nearly enough. The lettering is 
also just complementary to the art. Um, so that you don't really notice it, which is great. You know, in the way that you don't necessarily consciously notice sound effects in film. Um, that's what good lettering is for me. And this is very definitely that. It's an absolutely cracking modern horror story, deeply rooted in questions that I think we're probably all asking right now. You know, there's, there's a lot of concern about medical ethics and medical research at the moment. We're just coming out of a global pandemic. Uh, that's understandable, I think. This is a very thoughtful take on, you know, what is a very, a very old trope. I mean, that the idea that science could go too far goes back all the way to Frankenstein. But this is this is a very refreshing take. It's genuinely thought provoking. It's genuinely unnerving. And for me, that's what a good horror comic should be about. So that is our comic of the week for this week. I commend it to you. And finally, I need to take a moment before we go to mark the passing of the astronaut Michael Collins. He was one of the three men who, in 1969, crewed the Apollo 11 mission that landed the first humans on the moon. Collins was not one of those first humans on the moon. He was the command module pilot of Apollo 11, and so his job effectively was to drive them there, stay in the car and keep the engine running, and then drive them back. And he did that perfectly. He knew he was never going to get the glory that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin got. He's not the household name that I think they still are. But he was pretty relaxed about that. Um, he said in an interview once that he, he certainly thought he didn't have the best seat, but that he was glad to have had the seat he had. He, you know, had a distinguished military career, had been a test pilot before flying for NASA. And he never really courted publicity, certainly not in the way that Buzz Aldrin does. Um, he was much more like Neil Armstrong in that respect. Uh, he kept himself pretty much to himself after his retirement. Major General Michael Collins retired to Florida, where he wrote and painted, and where he passed away this week after a fairly long battle with cancer. Another of the last generation's heroes has left us. He will be missed. So, as I say to all the great pilots as they leave, Blue Skies, sir, fly free. Ad Astra. Although perhaps, in your case, General Collins, Ad Luna. And on that note, I think that is everything we have for you this week. We'll be back next week with more great geeky stuff. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Stay safe, but above all else, stay geeky. Until the next time, we go geeking. Goodbye. <laughs>